This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And we're back. This is Creature Comforts here on MPB Think Radio, the show about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Java Chapman filling in for Kevin Farrell this morning. As always, Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, is here along with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And today our guest is Cayman Campbell from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks. And we're going to be talking about the white-tailed deer, which is the official land mammal mammal of Mississippi and also one of our top game animals too and it's a lot of a lot of things to get into with the white-tailed deer from um you know the chronic wasting disease that is um I don't want to say plaguing but it's everywhere in the news so to speak also um you know how to avoid them on the roadways and um is it still hunting season questions people may have um about the white-tailed deer so don't be afraid to join the conversation one eight seven seven. MPB ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org um, also want to remind everybody that creature conference repeats on Saturday mornings at six and uh good morning to everybody how is everybody doing today good morning good good morning good morning it's always different when I'm on this side of the glass instead yeah. of pushing the buttons <laughs> but we're gonna make it work this morning. Uh, We're glad to have you. Well, I appreciate that, Libby. As always, um, we you know start off with um, things that may be happening at the museum in the science community, um, Libby. So, you have any events for us today? Tonight is Family Science Night. Tonight, and it's going to be raining, but you got to get out anyway because it's too much fun. Eight, uh, six o'clock to eight o'clock, and um, it's a way to learn about science as a family. And it's all fun science. You're really just going up there having a good time. This is going to be messy. And you will learn a lot. Yes, there probably are some messy things. <laughs> Let's see. Um, you'll experience science in fun, hands-on ways. Play with robots. Uh, meet some Mississippi wildlife. Do experiments. Develop your mind with crazy brain teasers. And it's all about science, technology, engineering, math, and a lot about the outdoors, too. So it's... Lots of fun, and as I always say, it's if you want to do a science fair project in the future, it's a really good place to come because there'll be lots of good ideas about science projects. Yeah, to spark spark the interest real yeah. quick, and you'll have a, like, mm-hmm. I remember I did that at Family Science Night. <laughs> and there are lots of science educators there that can kind of help you develop an idea if you already have an idea that of a science experiment or project that you want to do on your own. Okay, and I also saw that event um, on our events calendar, mpbonline.org. Just click on our events calendar, and you'll see that event along with uh, many others that may be happening at the museum. Uh, Dr. Major, how are you doing this morning? Doing good. Everything's going along, staying busy. Yeah, last week was a, um, a all pet uh, program, which is always popular, and uh, we get lots of calls, lots of emails. We can't, um, you know, possibly get to all of them. So I actually have one that came in on our um, one of our on on our Saturday repeat. We we repeat the show on Saturday mornings, and uh, people do send in their emails. And um, this comes from uh, Debbie and. 
Oxford, and it's about a skin rash. My four-year-old American Bulldog mix has been licking the skin on his underbelly where the hind legs meet the belly. The areas are very red and irritated. I took him to the doctor recently, got a steroid shot along with a week's supply of an antibiotic. The shot was effective for about a month, but now he's licking the areas again. I did not give the antibiotic because we don't know that it's bacterial. Should I have given the antibiotics or is there another approach, even though I don't know the cause? And he is an inside pet and has always been very healthy. So that's a good question. It's going to be hard to tell you uh, over the phone or over the radio exactly what's going on. But it sounds like, yes, the steroids did help. There's some options other than steroids that might might help. And I think probably would have been wise to use the antibiotic. Uh, the vet, having seen it, felt like that it needed to be done. Uh, a lot of times there can be an allergy. Uh, a dog, especially a, a big dog like that, can lick excessively. It'll stay moist and uh, provide an excellent source for bacterial uh, involvement. Uh, they need to be thinking in terms of have they changed anything? Have they changed bedding? Well, here's the here's the, here's the one little um, thing at the end of the email. The only change I can think of, um, I haven't been having him groomed monthly since last November. So last November 2017 um, um, hasn't been groomed monthly. Well, no, no, 2018. Yeah. And wondering if the if the baths were actually helping to um, keep that skin healthy. I imagine a medicated bath probably would help uh, something that uh, is antibacterial, anti-fungal, uh, if you will, uh, something that would kill both the typical malassezia uh, fungus that occurs, and it thrives in moist conditions, and the dog licking is just going to perpetuate that. So there's a drug called Apoquil, which is an alternative to uh, steroids that they may want to try. But uh, they need to get back with their vet, and I would suggest that there's some other things that need to be done. All right. Now, if you have a pet question this morning, um, you can you can also get that answered. Uh, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org, or you can give us a phone call, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. But also today we're going to be talking with our guest, Cayman Campbell, wildlife biologist at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Um, actually, you're a private lands biologist? Correct. I work in the private lands program, which works with any size landowner to help them manage wildlife species or their habitat. So you will come look at my backyard? Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm, I I don't know how much wildlife I have, you know, some ants and some grasshoppers or something, um, and and a dog that usually stays in the house. But um, I appreciate you for coming in this morning. Um, and I was looking at the, I guess, the hunting schedule on the um, Mississippi Department of Wildlife um, website. And is it still deer, white-tailed deer hunting season? It is. In all zones except for the southeast, deer season is going to be open until January 31st. And from here on out, I do believe it's primitive weapon season. On private lands, you could use a weapon of choice as long as you have that primitive weapon hunting license. In the southeast zone, the season's extended until February 15th. Of course, they start, you know, a month later than, or a few months, a few weeks later than we do in the, in the fall, too. 
that's because of the later breeding dates of bucks down there. You know, a lot of times the bucks are still chasing the does into mid-February, so we give them an opportunity to hunt bucks during the rut down there. Now, when we're talking, you said primitive weapons with um, bow and arrow. Primitive weapon, according to the state, is a single-shot metallic cartridge, thirty-five caliber or larger, or a muzzleloader firearm. Okay, <laughs> I will pretend to understand what what you just said. It's kind of like <laughs> antique guns. Okay, so we have to, we we're, we're hunting yeah. to deal with the muskets, but they make new ones now. But yeah, they're they're it's, it's a it's like a. Right. A fun thing to do, I guess, for a lot of people. They like to do that. I mean, I, I would I would admittedly, mm-hmm. you know, let my ignorant show about that mm-hmm. uh, when you said primitive weapons. I went exclusively to um, bow and arrow mm-hmm. and archery. <laughs> I think most people, that's, that's their, you know, that's what we know about. That's our knowledge level on most of that stuff. But there, there's a good many people that use those muzzle loaders. There are. In most other states, primitive weapons, you have to use an actual muzzle loader. Mississippi is one of a handful of states where a primitive weapon could actually be, you know, a high caliber rifle as long as it's, you know, 35 caliber or larger. Okay. Okay. All right. Oh, now let me go ahead and ask this question too, since it is still deer hunting season. Is that the reason why they're pushed to the roads? I always heard and believed that, you know, you see deer closer to the highways because it's hunting season and they're hunting them out the woods. How, part how of that, that part of that could be hunting pressure. Deer are very aware of what parts of the you know property get hunted and what parts don't. And being so it's illegal to hunt within, you know, hundred yards of a public road. You know, deer are aware of that. This time of year especially, deer are moving more because of the cold weather. And you know, the colder it is outside, the more they have to eat to stay warm. And roadsides often have have, you know, good green vegetation compared to what you'd find, you know, in a lot of forested areas this time of year. So deer are going to go there for their food source. And you have a lot of bucks, you know. In most of the state, you know, north of Interstate 20, for example, the peak of the rut's already over. And for the last three weeks, the bucks have done nothing but chase does around. All of a sudden, they figured out their stomach's empty and they're, they're hungry. <laughs> so they're, they're eating more than ever right now. It's another reason for them to, you know, show up on the roadsides. Because it's always funny when you, um, you know, driving down the highway and, um, just see those eyes like oh those are there's i I call them bambies when i see them it's like oh there's bambi there's another bambi (laughs) or bambi's daddy bambi's father (laughs) yeah yeah the big the big bugs now um cayman as a um private private lands biologist what are um i guess some of your uh daily duties um you know working with uh private land owners in the private lands program, I generally will you know, do a site visit with a landowner if they have an interest in whether it's turkey or quail or deer, whatever the primary interest is. I'll go out and take a look at their property and find ways to improve the quality of their habitat, whether that's cutting timber, if it's planting food plots, it could be you know, managing old fields, you know, uh, hack and squirt, a lot of things you could do to improve the quality of the habitat that that wildlife is dependent upon to you know increase the number of wildlife and to make their property more attractive than their neighbors. <laughs> and and you got to lure those turkey over That's right. to your woods, huh? That's right. You know, most animals have very large home ranges, like turkey. You know, they can cover you know six to seven thousand acres easily. You know, as part of their daily or weekly home range. And white-tailed deer, you know, does are anywhere from a four hundred acre home range. Bucks can be up to a sixteen hundred acre home range. And most people don't have near that number of acreage. So if you can make your 10 acres or your 50 acres more attractive than your neighbors, then you're going to see more wildlife than your neighbors do. Now, what if I'm a private land owner and I don't want that wildlife? Um, 
you know, I guess um, it's it maybe dependent on just the person if they would like to see more turkey, more quail, more deer on their property, and you may have someone who doesn't want that, you know, on their property. Most most you know most people are not going to view wildlife as a nuisance. You're going to have the exception, you know, in urban areas where you've got deer coming up on your back porch and eating plant flowers and stuff like that. And there, you know, there's things you can do to try to keep them, you know, off of small acreage. But most of the time, people are going to enjoy the experience. At least I'd hope they would. Yeah, no, I, I hope they would also. Now, you were saying about keeping them out of, um, um, out of, I guess, urban areas and in your your planet, <laughs> in your garden. And what are some of those uh, some of those remedies to keep them away? Because I know that now that can be a hazard with children and um, things like that. I've played around with this a little bit. I've got some blueberries and figs in my backyard, and I've planted gardens in the past. They, you know, they can get used to human presence, but they can also pattern us very well. So if you go to your garden the same time every day, or you know, work in your garden, you know, they're going to figure out what times of day you're there and what time of day you're not. And if it's a situation, you know, deer are nocturnal primarily, so if they're coming there at night, you're going to have to find you know some technique that's going to keep them from browsing, you know, in your garden or on your blueberry bushes or what have you at night. So sometimes, you know, just putting up, you know, a small fence or putting some rags out there and spraying a little bit of cologne or perfume on them and, you know, changing up the scent once in a while, they might say, hey, you know, it smells like there's a person standing right here even though I don't see them. Okay. And they might stay away. Now, that's that was some good um, good tips. And if you miss any of those, you can always listen back to the program um, when we put it up on podcast. But let's go ahead and take our first break for the hour. We're um, talking about the white-tailed deer, the official land mammal uh, here in Mississippi with Cayman Campbell from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Also, I'm here with Libby Hartfield and Dr. Troy Major, who is um, ready for your pet questions. You can join the conversation this morning by giving us a call, one 877 MPB ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. When we get back from the break, we'll talk a little bit uh, about chronic wasting disease and how it is affecting uh, the white-tailed deer of Mississippi. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're on Creature Comforts here on MPB Think Radio. I'm Java Chapman here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the hour, Cayman Campbell from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We're talking about the white-tailed deer of Mississippi. And uh, if you want to join the conversation, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can send an email to animals at MPB online.org. Now, right before the break, we were saying that we were going to talk about uh, chronic wasting disease, and uh, we talked a little bit before the show came in that this is like one of the biggest things you guys have been working on over the past year. It is. You know, I had said before that I was a private lands biologist for the state, but I would say since we discovered chronic wasting disease in February of 2018, that probably 80 or 90% of my time has been doing something in response to chronic wasting disease. And then there's, you know, majority of biologists in the agency, you know, are in the same situation. We discovered it for the first time, you know, in Issaquena County, and a deer that a hunter observed die while they were hunting. They went out to their deer stand, sat there over their food plot, and had the sick buck walk out there and lay down and ended up expiring, you know, within sight. 
So, you know, fortunately, he called our agency and reported it because that was, you know, extremely abnormal to watch that happen. And it turned out that deer had chronic wasting disease, and it's the first time we had discovered it. Now, let me um, stop you real quick. We're going to continue about the chronic wasting disease, but speak to, the, I guess, the importance of uh, people being diligent in reporting things that they see when they're um, out on hunts or out in wildlife because, you know, you guys can't be everywhere all the time. <laughs> we certainly can't. The the hunters are, you know, there there are eyes in the field and, you know, they wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do anything we do as an agency without the hunters being on our side and, you know, helping us, you know, manage deer populations and, you know, manage habitat and everything else that they do. Because I just, I, I beg to, you know, how much longer would it have been before you guys found chronic wasting disease if that um, hunter had not reported what he saw? It could have been a long time. Our, our sampling effort at the time was focused, you know, in areas of the state where we had very few samples. And the county where we had, you know, ended up finding that one deer was the most heavily sampled county in the state. So it's not necessarily where we were looking, but that's where we found it. So it was, it was fortunate that we found it early. And with this disease, you know, it can, it can be spread, you know, with saliva, urine, feces, you know, through reproduction, you know, direct contact from one deer to the other. It can also, you know, go into the soil, you know, stay dormant in the soil for up to decades and then be uptaken by a plant. The deer eats the plant and they can catch the disease. So once you have it in an area, it's really impossible to get rid of it. And the only hope you have a success of managing it is to find it early. And that's one reason we want all of our hunters to report, you know, sick deer. If a deer looks malnourished or skinny, you know, there's there's a lot of things that can cause that. But CWD, or chronic wasting disease, is one of them. And also a deer that behaves abnormally. It's a spongiform encephalopathy. It's put in the same family as like scrapie in sheep or mad cow disease in cattle. And it affects the nervous system and the brain. So they become incoherent and they don't act like they're supposed to. And the second positive deer that we found in the state in Pontotoc County was a deer that was in a guy's backyard and was not afraid of his dogs. And, you know, that's just, you know, the deer did not look unhealthy, but it was behaving abnormally. So he reported that one as well. And that's when we found, you know, the first positive in our north zone, the north part of the state. Now, um, I guess you just answered the question when it comes to abnormal behavior of a deer. Um, normally, a dog barks and the deer jumps and runs away, um, but it didn't happen that time. Right. Deer, a deer should be, you know, afraid of any potential threat on its life, whether that's a human hunter or a dog or even a vehicle. So roadkill samples are another thing the agency focuses on pulling samples because a deer loses its ability to say, hey, there's a car coming. I should move out of the way. So roadkill are more likely to have the disease. And, you know, they, they should be, you know, they should be afraid of a dog and they should be afraid of you and you, you see them in the woods. I've had several hunters report deer that they drove by on their four wheeler and just stood there at 10 yards and looked at them. <laughs> and I got to ask them, why didn't you, why didn't you get that deer so I could pull a sample on it? Yeah, because I, I, uh, one of my favorite clips on um, on the Internet is a guy. He just I don't I don't maybe these deer have chronic wasting disease. He's just he's just sitting there feeding it. Uh, we're not feeding the deer, but they just come up to him as almost like a dog. Like they just come up to him and he's like, hey, he calls him Bambi, too. He's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny, funny clip. Um, but what what is your um, um, agency actually doing? Um, well, let me back up. Is this. Uh, harmful to people, chronic wasting disease. There is no current research that proves that a human can catch chronic wasting disease. And there also is no research, you know, 
currently conducted experimenting on humans. You know, it's an always fatal disease that they can't really test a human with. Because if they were to ever successfully transfer it to a human, there'd be no cure for it. They have, you know, tested it on a variety of other species, which have all been, a lot of them have been able to catch the disease. Most of them can at least be a carrier of it, such as a wild hog can, you know, they can eat a potentially infected deer. And then, you know, a few days later when that deer comes back out at the other end, the prion that causing the disease is still active and, you know, still viable. That's bad. It is. It, the prion, I think research right now is saying you've got to soak it in like a 50% solution of bleach for a day to kill it or heat it to over 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. All of which is, you know, impossible. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so I guess um, now beyond um, reporting um, abnormal behavior um, or um, sick deer, what, what are, is there anything else listeners can do with, you know, trying to help uh, keep chronic wasting disease down? Absolutely. I mean, within the zones, we're going to be establishing probably a few new regulations for the next, you know, a few hunting seasons to try to, you know, manage the deer herd a little bit differently inside of those zones. We're still trying to figure out exactly what, you know, shape that it's going to take. You know, the biggest help the listeners could do would be to submit heads for testing. And we've got, I think, 26 or 27 freezers across the state that are published on our website and our mobile app. And we check those, you know, sometimes two or three times a week. And if a hunter, you know, shoots a deer, even if that deer appears healthy, they can take the head with six inches of the neck. If it's a buck, we prefer they take the antlers off because it'll be hard to get them back to the hunter. But we can we can test those deer on a weekly basis, you know, in parts of the state that have a low turnout. You know, our goal for the state is to sample 6,000 deer. And we're getting close to that goal. But the county goal is south of Interstate 20, are still below what they need to be. So I appeal to any hunters out there that are, you know, south of Interstate 20, or if you know your sons or your grandsons or grandkids in general hunt, you know, let them know that they can have their deer tested for free. And if they're potentially worried about the disease, you know, we can test it. It won't cost them a dime other than taking it to a freezer. We've got bags and zip ties and data cards they can fill out. All they got to do is take the head a few inches of the neck and drop it in a freezer and we'll have it sampled in a week. And um, if you need to visit the website, it's uh, the Mississippi Department Wildlife, MDWFP.com. All right. And uh, if you're just joining the program, um, you've been listening to Cayman Campbell, um, wildlife biologist at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. And we're talking about the white-tailed deer. Uh, we're going to shift from uh, chronic waste and disease. But if you want to uh, join the conversation, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Also, Dr. Major is here for your um, your pet questions. Now, you talked about um, rogue kill being one of your um, uh, ways to, you know, get samples of, of the deer. It, how can we avoid hitting these deer? I don't know. Why, why is it not like um, it's an epidemic of hitting wolves or epidemic of coyotes? It's just an epidemic of hitting deer. <laughs> I mean, if you compare the number of deer on the landscape, even to the number of predators such as coyotes and bobcats, they're, you know, they're far more prevalent. How many, how many, uh, I know ballpark figure, how many deer are in the state? I think the last estimate I saw was about 1.2 million. Oh, that's a lot of deer. <laughs> it is. I'm sure you've heard the expression, you know, deer in the headlights. And that, yes. That is true. For some odd reason, when they see a vehicle coming at them, they just, they freeze up. 
and they, they don't move or sometimes you know they see a car coming and they think well now's my only chance to cross the road my apparently i've chance. got lights i can see to cross <laughs> I'll, I'll cross now one thing i have discovered though is you know you're driving down the side of the road a lot of times those deer that are standing there and appearing calm at the last second are going to try to run across so you know if you see deer in front of you go ahead and take your foot off the gas you know touch the brake or hover your foot over the brake and get get ready for it you know anticipate that deer running across the road Another thing is if you see one deer cross the road in front of you, chances are there's going to be more. So if that first deer crosses the road, don't keep watching it. Look for the second or the third deer that's about to cross the road, too. And I have had one cross back. That's In fact, I hit one that way. It ran across the road, and I started up again, and it just really hit me. Yes, and I, I saw um, somebody recently um, on, online got hit by a deer, and it's just... I don't. I could try to pretend to understand it, but deer in the headlights—that's that's a real thing. <laughs> You've also got to be more observant. You know, right at sunset and sunrise, deer are primarily crepuscular. I mean, they're they're nocturnal, so they're more active at night. But they feed most and move most right at sunrise and sunset. So they're. I mean, that's the you know two worst times to be able to see deer because it's low light conditions and your headlights don't work quite as well. But that's also the time deer are going to be most active. So you've really got to be paying attention for them. Okay. Before our, um, our next break, let's talk to, um, we have a call on the line, Sue in Beaumont. Um, and I think Sue wants to talk about, uh, oh, catching chronic wasting disease. Uh, good morning, Sue. How are you doing? Good morning. How's everybody today? Hey, Sue. <laughs> Y'all. Yeah. Uh, I, I've often wondered if, uh, okay, since you said that the deer, if if they leave poop out there, that a hog can get infected from eating plants behind them. What, what if, or eating them, what if they poop on plants, these prions that carry the disease? What if a human ate berries or something? Can you get the chronic wasting disease from other than eating the flesh of an infected deer? Oh, we need to emphasize you cannot. Right now there is absolutely no evidence that a person can get deer. I mean, can, can get chronic wasting disease from eating deer. And, and I had no idea that, that the hunting season would last so long because I, I live on the edge of government woods and, and there's people driving by every day with dog boxes on the back of their mud splattered trucks. <laughs> yeah. been out there hunting deer. But, yeah. I had no, but what's scary to me is to be driving down a road and see people holding guns out by the side of the road. I thought that was against the law. It is illegal to hunt from a vehicle like that. No, on a public road especially. An outside vehicle holding guns. I, I assume waiting for the deer to be flushed out of the wood. I thought that was against the law. It is illegal to hunt from a public road. Well, people do it, though. That's true. They, well, they break the speed limit, too. <laughs> that's I like that one. Uh, yeah, well, Sue, if you, um, you know, um, like we were talking earlier, if you if you see something, you know, uh, report it to um, um, the wildlife uh, department uh, and, and, you know, let them let them take care of it. Because um, as Cayman just just said that, you know, it is against the law, but they cannot they can't be everywhere all the time. So, if you, you know, if you see something, Sue, just um, let people let, let people know. And we appreciate you for calling this morning. All right, thank you. All right, let's go ahead and take our uh, next break for the hour. Um, I'm Java Chapman, filling in for Kevin Farrell today, sitting alongside my friends, Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the day, Cayman Campbell from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We're going to continue our conversation about the white-tailed deer when we come back. Um, give us a call, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll have more after the break.
MPB listeners pay attention to quality. They look for quality in their work and their daily lives. If your business cares about quality customers, look to MPB. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting for more information. Welcome back. I'm Java Chapman here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and Cayman Campbell, private lands biologist at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We're talking about the white-tailed deer here on Creature Conference this morning. And if you want to join the conversation, that's one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Let's uh, go back to the phone lines. We have Eric uh, from Natchez on the line. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Good morning. How are y'all? Oh, we're doing fine. Go ahead with your comment. Comment is deer in the headlights. Turn your brights off. They'll see where you're coming from and move away. Thank you, Eric. That is, I think that does help sometimes to not have that high beam. I'll have to give that a try. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I have a lot of trouble where I live with, with deer on the road. And if I slow down, and, and maybe it is just the blinking of the lights, but if I slow down and change the light, I don't know if they see it as something different or not, but it seems like sometimes they will just walk away from the road. I proved it to myself coming down my neighborhood road one time. Turned the brights on, the deer stopped in the middle of the road and turned and looked at me. Turned the brights off, he moved off the road. Well, that would be interesting. <laughs> we we'll try go. that. Yeah. Uh, science experiment <laughs> yeah. right right there. Kevin, yeah. what about the uh, little deer whistles that you put on Bopper? Do they do any good? The people who have them, I've talked to them, are convinced that they work. Okay. But no science. I've, I've never tried them to find out. Okay. Well, appreciate that, um, Eric. Um, uh, we're going to have to, they're deer in the headlights because this uh, just, it's a phenomenon to me. It it, it baffles me. But, um, um, Cayman, as we were talking um, a little bit off the air, Dr. Major uh, was giving us a peek into his life and his deer herd that he has. <laughs> um, <laughs> they have me. <laughs> <laughs> when um, when when people um, have deer, um, I guess on their on their property, um, what 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 actions are are there to take? I guess on if they want them and if they don't want them. I mean, if you want deer there, I mean they're they're driven by their stomach. So you know, having a garden or you know, feed or anything like that. Even a bird feeder is going to attract deer. And at the same time, you have to weigh the risk versus the reward. And if, if you're in a part of the state that has chronic wasting disease, you know, it's one of the things you got to consider because the disease, if it's there, will spread a lot faster. If you artificially congregate those deer and force more interactions, you know, such as at a feeder location. Okay. And uh, would it be in, um, what, the mid-January, um, at the top of the year what 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 is the activity of the the deer of the state right now they're extremely active right now because of the cold weather the last few weeks they're moving a lot more trying to feed more you know post rut the bucks are all of a sudden hungry that they, they realize they haven't ate anything in three weeks so they're <laughs> they're going to be moving around and trying to, to try to fill their bellies and recuperate a little bit now when you say rut you've said that a number of times Explain it to me. The rut is the breeding season for white-tailed deer. They they only breed one time a year. In the northwest part of the state, that starts all the way back in early November. 
in the southeast part of the state, it goes clear until mid-February. It's partly driven by the the solar period as far as I mean, how many hours of sunlight there are a day. It's driven by, you know, genetics a little bit and also the health of the herd. So, you know, if a doe is born from a doe that was bred early, chances are she's going to come into her cycle early. And also the health of the herd plays a part into if a deer is really healthy, you know, they come to their cycle sooner. If they're unhealthy, it's going to be a little bit later in the year. Okay, so after the rut, and like you said, now that everybody's kind of moving about because, uh, especially the bucks, they haven't eaten. <laughs> They've been just chasing does around. Correct. Research has shown that the majority of deer on a property, you know, if they have a healthy, balanced sex ratio, the majority of does, like 80 to 90% of them, will all be bred within a one to two week window. Oh, wow. And then you know, the few that don't get bred that time will get bred, you know, hopefully 28 days later. All right. We're talking about the white-tailed deer of Mississippi. is uh, the official state land mammal um, here in, in the state. And if you want to join our conversation, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We have uh, Cayman Campbell here, private lands biologist here uh, from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Now, um... What is the preferred habitat for uh, white-tailed deer? We talked about, uh, you know, them being on private lands, but what would what would what would it look like, um, you know, for a white-tailed deer to be invited or welcomed? <laughs> Ideal habitat for white-tailed deer is going to be, you know, early successional habitat. I mean, their their world, as far as the cover that they hide in, the bedding area they sleep in, and the food they eat, all exist within four feet of the ground. They're, I mean, everything above that doesn't make much of a difference to them. So if you've got, you know, an older pine plantation or hardwoods, you know, if, if it's closed canopy and no sunlight's hitting the ground, there's not a lot of good deer habitat in there. There's no good bedding area. There's no good food. There's no cover. So putting some sunlight on the ground, you know, through timber harvest is a good way to increase the quality of your habitat. But deer, deer will find a way to survive in almost any situation. Uh, one of my old professors at Mississippi State University used to call them pine goats because he was convinced they could live on pine cones and pine needles. <laughs> pine goats, that's a good one. I don't think they like it. That's not where they, they want to hang out. But they're, no. of the 400 plants that they eat in the southeast, they can always find something that will get them through the year. Okay, so if they had to, they would. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> All right. What's the um, uh, average lifespan of, of a deer? Because we were talking about um, breeding season is just breeding season is just over. Um, I guess the babies, the is it the fawns? Correct. Are they've being got about born a, or, or, or going to be born. They've got about a seven month uh, gestation period. So most of your fawns in the state are going to be hitting the ground sometime, you know, June, July, or August depending upon what part of the state you live in. Okay. And then, I guess, um, what's that, I guess, um, mat- maturity um, cycle? A doe, if she is healthy enough, will actually be, and it really has to do with her body weight. There's a critical body mass, probably, if I had to guess, around 70 or 80 pounds, that if they can hit that their very first year, they could potentially be bred as a fawn. Oh. But the majority of them will be, they'll be you know, fertile by the time they're a year and a half of age. And there's, you know, a, uh, a misconception out there in the general public that a lot of deer will become barren in old age. And that, that's never true. I mean, a deer that's, you know, eight, nine, ten years old 
is still going to be healthy and still producing fawns every single year. Yeah, when you look up uh, deer myths, uh, that's the old, the old bear and fawn. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, the old bear and fawn. Uh, we got a couple callers uh, on the line, so let's go to, let's see, Leah on the coast. Um, good morning, Lee. How you doing? Hi, I'm fine. I'm glad you're mentioning everything about deer. I love deer. Well, uh, I pre- appreciate you just calling in there. What's your, what's your comment? Okay, my comment is that um, y'all talking about a lot of bad cow disease, and okay, that and you're reassuring. Leah, we're having a hard time. Well, Leah, we're having a hard time hearing you. Uh, hearing you. Um, you, you said something about mad cow disease. Okay, can you? Yes, sir. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, yeah, you were reassuring people that they there's no way they can catch it. But if you if y'all remember, mad cow disease is a prion disease, and the you know the real name is bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And yeah. if you re, okay, the people form of the disease is Kutcher Jacob disease. People get that. I've even treated someone with that from Mississippi at Oshner in New Orleans. And if you remember in the 1980s in England, when they had to kill all their cattle because the prion disease started in the sheep and they fed it to the deer and people ate the deer. So I think you just, I mean, be careful what you, you know. Yeah, we, no, we understand. People that they should, you know. I guess to clarify, I mean, there there is no research right now that proves that a human can get it. There's also no research that proves they cannot. And, you know, the, the Board of Animal Health and the Department of Health for the state recommend not eating deer if you hunt inside of a zone that has CWD and have not had that deer tested. And if you have the deer tested, that's a completely different story. But, you know, there you know, there is a potential risk out there. And it has never been documented, but that doesn't mean it does not exist. Yeah, and we kind of said the exact same thing um, off mic uh, came in about that it's not proven that you can get it, and it's not proven that you can't get it. So you um, you know take those precautions when in the zone of uh, chronic wasting uh, disease. I think the caller was really uh, alluding to the mad cow disease, and yes, there have been people that uh, get that, and there's been no proof, though, that uh, the deer... Uh, wasting disease, chronic wasting disease has been spread. Yeah, well, appreciate, appreciate you, Lee, for uh, for that comment uh, this morning. We um, we have so great conversations off mic. We just keep yeah, and that is why. Yeah, that's why <laughs> testing is so important, and that's why I guess that's why you're on the radio today because we want to encourage people to get their deer tested and to let us know if they find a sick deer because there's a right. lot. That is not known, and we 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 need to we're we need to learn to, a lot quick. We're mm-hmm. trying to do our best as an agency to figure out where all that disease, not just to detect it early, but to figure out where it is and what prevalence rate it is, what prevalence rate it is at, so we can you know draw a map and get, provide it to the hunting public and say, look, this is where we know the disease exists, and this is the prevalence rate we know it's at, whether it's in one out of you know five deer or one out of a hundred thousand, and let the let the public know that and make an educated decision for themselves. 
Well, let's go ahead and take our last break for the hour. We got a couple calls online, uh, Dudley and Cheryl. We will come back to you and we will continue talking with uh, Kamen Campbell, uh, private lands biologist here at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We're talking about the white-tailed deer this morning. Join our conversation, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 or you can send an email to fixit101 oh <laughs> to animals at mpbonline.org this is creature comforts here on mpb think radio thank you um <laughs> <laughs> like I said, our conversations off mic are the best ones. <laughs> I hate to say that, but we, we, we're going to put some like extended creature comforts uh, outtakes online. I'm Java Chapman here uh, with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We've been talking with Cayman Campbell for the hour, uh, private lands biologist at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks. We're going to jump back on the phones as we get ready to wrap up this edition of Creature Comforts and uh, we're going to talk with Dudley uh, from Calhoun County. How you doing Dudley? Doing fine. Uh, I, I just wanted to share an observation while I was listening to the show. A six point buck just kind of sniffed his way across my yard. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I, this is not a pretentious comment. It's, it's a, a comment of gratitude. I really do enjoy your show very much, too. No, oh, well, appreciate appreciate that, Dudley. And um, that's that's you know, it's Mississippi. It's uh, you can see six points. How, how often can you see a six point camera? This is the first time I've seen one uh, come across my yard like this. Usually, I see uh, female deer, but I never see a buck. And this was quite an experience this morning. I thought Miss Libby would enjoy that, too. Yes. You know what, Dudley? I'm so glad to hear you, that you heard it during Creature Comfort. So, yeah. yeah. We call them in, I guess, don't we? <laughs> yeah. You really do. Uh, if not the deer, the birds. Well, appreciate, appreciate you listening and your comment, uh-huh. uh, Dudley. How, um, uh, out of the, one, what did you say, one point something million, how many are those big bucks out there? <laughs> Sex ratio at birth? Is about 50-50. But bucks have a shorter natural lifespan. Okay. Uh, does, you know, in captivity, they'll live, you know, 17, 18 years. In the wild, if you get a 10-year-old doe, it's something special. Most bucks, because of the hunters in the state, seldom see their sixth birthday. Uh, okay. And they also deal with other issues related to, to rut-related injuries. You know, they spar and they fight trying to establish dominance. A lot of times they'll get, you know a hole through the top of their skull plate or get injuries that they'll they'll succumb to. So, you know, in most hunted situations, you're going to have about two or three does per buck on a property. Let's go to Cheryl uh, from Jackson. Um, Actually has a question about wild dogs. Good morning, Cheryl. Good morning. Um, We have coyotes, and they are, we live up in Panther Creek, uh, which is north of Lake Caroline, off of 55 on the west side. And we have a homeowner that uh, caught him on his security cam the other day and that killed people's cats and ducks. And what can we do? They're, they're considered a nuisance animal, and I'm, I'm not recommending breaking the law by any means. 
but you know as a nuisance animal anybody with a hunting license can take them you know with legal weapons for that season if there's you know a neighbor that would be interested in doing that if you're inside of a you know a city or a subdivision where there's an ordinance about the discharge of firearms you certainly have to abide by the law there in that situation our agency does permit a bunch of nuisance trappers uh-huh. and if you call our agency at 601-432 2199. There'll be a lady or a guy there can answer the phone and give you the best local nuisance trapper in your area who'd be able to come out there and you know try to get rid of them for you. Of course, that would be for a fee. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, appreciate you for calling in um, today, Cheryl. And uh, give give that number once again if somebody has, I guess, a nuisance animal. The 601-432- 2199 and we have a biologist of the day it's a rotating panel biologist that answer the phone from 8 to 5 monday through friday and help with all sorts of questions okay and another great resource is um the website um i just had to pull it up www.wfpd.com it's MDWFP. I knew you Mississippi right. Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, Parks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and as we um, come up on our last few minutes of the show, um, talk about um, the, I guess, the prevalence of chronic wasting disease. You have had six positives in two zones over 5,000 samples. Correct. We've really ramped up our sampling efforts this year after we're finding the first one in the state back in February. And we have a, a goal of 6,000 samples for the season. And so far, we're, we're well over 5,000. So we're going to get to that goal, it looks like. But you know, I just want to point out that you know, in, the, in the south Issaquena zone, we've got you know, two positives. In the north zone, it's a little, a little more spread out all the way from Marshall County to Pontotoc County. And we've sampled you know, a couple thousand deer just within that zone from hunter harvest to deer who've you know, hunters who've taken their heads to our freezers for drop-off locations. And as of right now, I think we have four that are confirmed positives in that region, which, you know, six positives out of 5,000 samples is an extremely good number so far. Yeah, and um, um, once again, I want to stress the importance of people reporting um, the things that they see, like if you see a, 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 a deer that's maybe underweight or um, erratic behavior, what are other, a couple other other signs? Well, if they, if they appear malnourished, you know, if they're really skinny or they don't behave normally, those are definitely two deer to go ahead and report. If it's during the hunting season and you observe that, go ahead and harvest the deer. It's a lot easier for us to pull a sample on a deer that you have than it is for us to try to track one down. And you can only get the sample from... Correct. The samples that we take are the retropharyngeal lymph nodes, which are about an inch behind the head and the neck. And you could also use the obex, which is the brainstem, right where the head connects to the spinal cord. It's not a disease where you can test the meat, you know, a month after you shoot the deer. If you're interested in having deer tested, you need to have, you know, save the head and the neck and have a biologist test it. And those um, and those locations, you can find them at the website uh, WD, MDWFP. <laughs> dot com Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks, mdwfp.com. Um, came I really uh, have enjoyed enjoyed this program today. Um, the white-tailed deer. I didn't know about the the bucks in only about six years, and uh, boys will be boys, I guess, if they you know 
are fighting and, and get an injury. <laughs> that is, is so interesting to me. Research has shown that almost 20% of your mature books will die every year from rut-related injuries. During the rut. Oh, man, that's a funny funny name for it, too. Uh, Cameron, if somebody wants to um, get in touch with you, give us that number or um, the website one more time. The website is mdwfp.com. The phone number for the main office is 601-432-2199. All right. We've been talking with Caven Campbell, uh, private lands um, biologist at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. I appreciate uh, Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield for letting me sit in for Kevin this morning and uh, Kevin for having the faith in me to sit in this morning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Creature Conference is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio funding provided in part by listeners like you. If you want to hear today's show or previous shows, visit mpbonline.org slash Creature Conference. Today's show was engineered by Michelle McAdoo and our call screener was Liz Gill for Dr. Major Libby Hartfield and our guest Cayman Campbell. I'm Java Chapman and up next is our Thursday 10 a.m. show Autocorrect with the lady auto mechanic Allison Walker. Tune in next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts heard only on MPB Think Radio.